what we are more and more getting today is a capitalism which is brutally efficient, but it no longer needs democracy for its functioning. You know, yes, this, this model of, of liberal democracy is under challenge, but you know, it's, for, it's for us who believe in it to find solutions to these problems. And start to talk about and prove the moral foundations of liberty and democracy. We've just seen, you know, confidence in democracy being shattered, quite frankly, and there's no justification. Welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party. I'm Jack Evans. And I'm also Sean Morley. Today, we're talking about democracy, the systems by which we decide who's going to shout at us. It's an episode of the people, by the people, for the people. We all believe in democracy, but every four years it serves up another boot in the head. So how did we get here? And how else can we create systems to organise our lives? We also get into the forgotten, forbidden democratic system, sortition. Maybe we'd support monarchy if the monarch was one of us, selected at random every six minutes. Big thank you to everyone who shares our episodes on social media, people who've left us a little review on iTunes to help others find us, and people who support our work on Patreon. We genuinely appreciate it. One way democratic institutions are corrupted is by money, so why not try to corrupt us by supporting us at patreon.com forward slash mandatory redistribution party, where you will find supplemental content and our everlasting gratitude. Okay, should we start the app? Yeah, I'll vote start. Motion carries. Motion carries! Sean, stop! Motion carries! Stop, Sean! Motion carries! You often see as a criticism of like better or preferential forms of democracy Hmm. that it's unclear how they like keep scaling up and whether like properly informed or fully collaborative or involved democracies make Hmm. sense on a big scale. Lately, I've been thinking, what would happen if you take a really trivial, normal, small-scale democracy and try to work it in the same way that our national parliamentary democracy works? (laughs) I always think when people start talking about democracy, the way I think people talk about the micro is like, I see the thought experiment of like five people trying to order food. Mm. Everyone's got all these really strong preferences. Mm -hmm. Like some people have places they will not eat. Mm -hmm. Some people have obviously have dietary and then moral dietary preferences. Mm -hmm. And actually organising all of those when you don't have the skills. Mm. No one really has the skills unless you're actually an organiser. You know you're out with a party with activists and organisers because they're like, bang, 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 we're getting a curry from here. Sorry, sorry, Claire, I know you hate it, but the needs of the many here, we're getting this curry. 
the way that would work if you followed like a parliamentary constituency-based first-past-the-post system. Like a party whip. You'd have a party yeah. whip screaming a at people on yeah. the phone. You've got people on WhatsApp and someone is like calling them yeah. abuse. You better fucking on- vote for an anchovy <laughs> picture or I'll leak these pictures to the sun. If you don't get a delivery driver to go to co-op and just get everyone those little eggs with a bit of mayo on the side, even though no one wants them, yeah, yeah. I am going to tell everyone about what happened seven years ago. Yeah, after that's happened, you've got people arguing strongly for pro-egg who have no, they have no desire for egg. They're just worried that the pictures are going to come out. Yeah, and then you've got people where you're trying to talk to them about like, okay, what do you want? Because you've been saying all week how much you love lasagna. <laughs> You've just but, been saying it all week uh, for no reason. You've been saying it as a non sequitur all week that you love lasagna. And then you're, you're saying Thai. You just keep saying Thai now. But when I ask you, what is Thai food? Describe Thai food. You have no idea. So what has happened? Someone got to you. Are you in a new WhatsApp group? Yeah. Hold on. Paul's saying get anchovies. And I know you hate anchovies. You've said you hate anchovies and you don't approve of anchovies. But for some reason you're abstaining. You've got to look viable. What, the, what does that mean? We're going to end up with a fucking anchovy pizza. To make this more efficient, we're actually just going to group votes based on where people are sat. So <laughs> if you're sat on a chair and everyone wants pizza, but you don't, we're just not going to count you. We just count the sofas now. So we're going to group everything like that. And also, if it ends up that like a lot of sofas agree, but overall people on sofas don't agree, we're going to go by sofas. So even if most people actually want anything else... If anyone, everyone has voted for anything else, but maybe about 35% of the people, they actually just want a pizza that's going to go through. <laughs> and also there are people outside of the house that actually don't get a vote because they used to colonise mm, other bits mm. of garden and shed. And we're just going to send someone out in the cold just to throw, just throw scraps. No, they're not getting they scraps. Really get a vote. They're, they're actually making the pizza. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Oh, by the way, can I just say, we own the restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we don't pay them. <laughs> and, and then we've missed another element here as well of like the pizza lobby. So actually, no one originally wanted a pizza, but before this whole debate came out, everyone got the Domino's text. <laughs> Ding! Yeah, you'll, have, you'll have someone who's gone to the toilet for a really long time and they're in another room yeah. talking to, to like pizza. the owner of the curry house. Yeah. And he's like... <laughs> You'll get a curry today, but then I'll give you a curry that's just for you tomorrow, yeah, yeah, direct yeah. to your house. Yeah. Oh, the next time you have a debate like this, I will bankroll it. I don't care about that one, but I'll bankroll it as long as you go this way on this one. Yeah, as long as you all get curry tonight, you are made. Let me tell you, you are made if you all get curry tonight. Listen, can I just take you aside? Listen, I know you don't want a curry, but if you vote for a curry this time, I will put you in the House of Lords. <laughs> and then... You can do whatever you want. You'll yeah. be a baron. That's reminded me that there is one complete overlap between actual party food combos and backroom dealings between MPs, which is if you vote now to yeah. get a Chinese, next time, I promise, <laughs> I promise next time yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. get a pizza. I promise yeah, yeah, next yeah. time we'll get a pizza. And then next time you've half forgotten yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. sort of different people there. Yeah. It's a bit of a different situation. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, you said we'd all get Chinese, but like, yeah, but these guys yeah, were there different. for that. Yeah, that was between us. Yeah, that was between us. But look, we've got all these extra people at the party who didn't hit, they didn't agree yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So we've got to get another pizza. And they're like, you said, you said next time, Chinese. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm really sorry. But, ne- but next time after this, I promise, next time after this, I promise we'll get Chinese. <laughs> As well, there's the person who whose place it is. Like if it's your place, your vote, it mysteriously holds, carries more weight. You're unlikely to get food to deliver to your place that you hate. And you don't have to say it. Everyone's like, 
they're just going to do like some sort of mega ruling yeah, against exactly. This. It's institutional power. You never have to explicitly yeah. interfere, but your your view will weigh higher. I don't need to get involved in the argument. I've got the fucking postcode. So if you want to get that food, <laughs> We're ordering it on my phone. To go through it, mate. We're ordering yeah. it on my phone, buddy. That's like, yeah, being the treasurer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know the password, so... <laughs> I don't need to do rhetoric. I got the postcode. Yeah. So actually... The, if you're saying uh, deliberative direct democracy won't work on a national macro scale and therefore should be abandoned as any kind of political goal, guess what, buddy? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if that you take parliamentary democracy, just talking about British parliamentary democracy, yeah, and try and pitch that to anyone, anywhere, as a way of doing anything, yeah. If they weren't laughing at you, they'd attack you. It's it's fully, it's like a mad way to do anything. But nowhere else, like, I've not been in any kind of democratic or aware of any kind of democratic institution, organisation, or ad hoc meetup or conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. that has come anywhere close to the kind of ramshackle democracy that we use to make the most important decisions in the country. <laughs> and stuff as well, like, this, the, the British Constitution is just... Uh, this hodgepodge of like stapled together stuff written on the back of receipts. You know, the prime minister's just not even a thing constitutionally. No, I, I want to. Okay, the prime minister doesn't exist. That's a, that's a strong uh, right. reason to believe so, it or not opening gambit. The parliamentary system as it developed today was basically consolidated in the 1700s after the Glorious Revolution, which was like not glorious and not a revolution. The basically capital, they were, they were mainly pissed off because the Royal Africa Company, which was set up in the late 1600s, um, had a monopoly on the slave trade. So the English bourgeoisie, well, they're kind of a gentry bourgeoisie as well because the overlap between them is quite large. There's not necessarily a clear-cut divide between them. But they're pissed off because the king had basically monopoly control over the global slave trade. The global slave trade was insanely popular. Like, you could put in a pound and get a thousand back. At the start of the 1600s, the English controlled 0% of the world slave trade. By 1700, they controlled 50% of the slave trade. Mm -hmm. um, and that was partly because they basically brought in William III, Parliament this is. They got rid of James II because of this big wave of anti-Catholicism. Also, James II is like a bit of a dick. You know, he's still the king. You know, this isn't a pro-feudalism podcast. But, but the, the, well, <laughs> not, not in this specific case, right? But the, um, they get rid of James II, who's the last Stuart, replace him with William of Orange, who then goes around, you know, slaughtering people in Ireland, which Cromwell had already done earlier in the century, um, and Scotland. But the big shift was that the bourgeoisie wanted greater control of the slave trade, which they got. Um, so in the 1690s, a few years after the initial stuff of the Glorious Revolution, they just changed it so any merchant could get involved in the slave trade and there was this like huge boom. They did this Bill of Rights, they didn't really sort anything out. Basically it was a list of things they were pissed off with James II about, like sacking judges because he didn't like them. They basically had this list that said to William, right, don't do any of these things that James did. And then the knock-on effect was that increased parliamentary power. But the big one was they created the Bank of England, they shifted the regent's debt because previously the monarch was just the government, so all the debt was theirs, to becoming the state's debt, which meant that they could just get an inordinate amount of debt because you could ostensibly always get it back through parliamentary taxation. And then parliament represent the bourgeoisie, so they're sort of trusted they would always get this money back. All of the stuff in terms of how the constitution works and the prime minister and things like that all developed like ad hoc. 
like select committees. Where did that come from? Well, that came from this th these things called the commissions, which were set up to oversee how William III was spending the government's money. It was just a convention that developed with to oversee finance. And then obviously everything costs money. So there's commissions set up for more and more things and that becomes the select committee system, which is like a massive, massive part of our system. So that's thing one. And then you got, so the prime minister developed as a concept, but doesn't exist constitutionally. And it's just this hodgepodge of different jobs. You see the term used about Walpole in the 1730s. So this is decades after the Scottish Revolution, but there's been no constitutional thing to create it. So people just ad hoc decide to defer to this one guy and go, can you just like take the helm on this a bit? Yeah. And we'll let you. Well, basically the monarch very slowly became less involved in politics as a consequence of some of the things that happened in the Glorious Revolution. Because what the Glorious Revolution was, was the bourgeoisie getting rid of a monarch they didn't like, bringing in one that more aligned with their views. So basically that's, that's divine right monarchy's gone, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, they yeah. also killed Charles I earlier in the century, but that's divine right monarchy gone. So, but no one's necessarily writing that down. They're not saying in a constitution, you know, the monarch does not have divine right. There's this person is in charge of the government. And basically what happened very slowly is the monarch constitutionally still had a great deal of prerogative power, but informally they could not get away with exercising that power without the backing of parliament. So the power balance shifts toward parliament and who's powerful in parliament? Well, the party that has a majority. And then if a party has a majority and that party has a leader, that person becomes the most powerful person. And if you compare that to like how rigorous the democracy of, for example, a trade union is, like pick any random trade union or pick a renter's union and look at the systems in place in that. And they're much more democratic and have like procedures for so many things compared to <laughs> the, the actual government. You know, it's always a fucking joke when the government gets arsy about like union donations or um, union elections or union vote and anything. It's like, well, and what the fuck? What the fuck are you to be saying anything yeah. about democracy? There's a lot in that. One is that our constitution is. I mean, when you think of a constitution, I think people think of like what America has, which is a codified document that uh -huh, says explicitly uh -huh. what's yeah, yeah, going yeah, yeah, yeah. on, and that comes with like the other side of the problems of like you've just linked yourself to this document you wrote hundreds of years ago and you mm. have to like try and change tiny bits with huge resistance every time mm. but what we have is like another extreme where I, really our constitution is just a hodgepodge of what people remember and some ghosts <laughs> it's like a lot of it's not quite written down it's it's full of mysteries mysteries that the solution is yes this was to solve a very particular constitutional problem like 400 years ago but it's still here and that's why, like, taxi drivers still have to have bales of hay in their pockets. <laughs> but it's also like the prime minister basically informally is exercising the prerogative powers of a monarch, which is why they can do completely wild shit. Um, you know, there was that high court judgment that said that we'd ethnically cleansed Diego Garcia and they won a high court judgment that said that the people could go back. And the only thing that can override a high court judgment <laughs> is the monarch's prerogative powers. So Blair just used them. Oh, Blair just used monarchical powers. Yeah, he just used monarchical powers. Um, and because that's what that's what he's exercising, the Prime Minister. The, the prerogative okay, powers yeah. of the monarch. Uh, the, like, it's weird because the monarch can't use them because everyone will be like, what the fuck are you doing? But ultimately, the, yeah. pri the Prime Minister's exercising them fucking daily. The monarch can't use them because people would be like, why would anyone have this power? We need to remove your station. Yeah. But the Prime Minister, that is their like primary weapon. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and also when you're talking about like unions um, and how they actually operate, it's not just like it's what gives them legitimacy and what mm-hmm. makes their legitimacy so transparent that mm-hmm. like what is considered a legitimate vote or a legitimate action or a legitimate um, raising and dealing of grievances, yep. a legitimate de- way of dealing with someone has done wrong within this institution, someone has lied or not done what they said. There's like a clear, um, there are clear outcomes for that that mm-hmm. members can then vote on and shape. You know, it's a constantly transforming thing. But it's really not clear what happens. I mean, this is something that I think we've all been struggling of and hit a pit stop on us. Mm, mm. So when the government has done a bad thing, what happens? And a very, very, very quiet voice has gone, nothing, 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 nothing happens. Nothing happens. Do you know what's underrated as a system of rule? Go on. Sortition. Sortition. I'm not sure I know what that is. Right. Sortition is basically where you pick people at random. <laughs> Oh, I, I've heard of this uh, idea, but like almost as um, like a sci-fi short story kind of concept, not like a not like a thing that's happened historically. Oh no, it's how Athenian democracy worked. But it wouldn't be truly random, right? They're not going to get some kind of onion picker to do it, right? It would be someone who owns a big plot of slaves. That was the well, they were all slave owners, yeah. Basically, it was anyone who wasn't a slave and was also a man. Uh, which is why it's like, why the fuck are you calling Athens the uh, the the home of Western democracy when it's like a giant slave society, slave town, yeah, uh, yes, uh, and yeah. So I mean, that's fucked. But other places have used it, like fifteenth century Florence. We use it for juries, and listen, a yeah, jury, a jury has is, the yeah. power uh, in 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 you know to choose whether someone basically loses their liberty for, and in some countries, their life for, I was going to say for a long time, liberty lost for a long time, death lost permanently. But if you're going to use that system to choose what happens to someone's liberty or life, then you should definitely be able to use sortition to choose when bin day is. I quite like that a jury in a way is like the law gets all the way as far as compiling the evidence going like, is this, 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 this we think there's a crime here. Mm-hmm. And then some people, the public go, don't enforce this. Don't, <laughs> don't actually do it though. Because you know, there's this thing in, in juries where, there's an idea that a jury can vote. They believe a crime has been committed by the word of the law, yeah. but that in this instance it shouldn't be punished. And I think maybe this is America, maybe it's the UK as well. But if you declare that you're aware this is something that you can do or that you might do, you're not allowed to be part of a jury because it's considered like so disruptive to the legal proceeding that you would conceptually mm. think this is what the law is, but I won't punish this in this instance due to my own morals, my own belief of what the law ought to be or some sort of outstanding circumstance. I think that's really good. I think you should like tell everyone this and then at, at the very instance that any law actually comes into the implementation point, just click a button, ring up a random person and go, here's what's happening. Should I do it? And they could be like, nah, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, a f- the phone call stage of the legislative process. So get rid of House of Lords. There's no, there's no basis for defending the House of Lords. Stupid institution, mm-hmm. right? This is my centrist proposal. I don't regard this as anything to uh, necessarily aspire to. This is what I think is a very basic proposal, which would be, if you're going to have a second house, make it uh, not only based on sortition, but may- maybe based on job. So you have representations from different jobs, you know, like 20% of people work in retail or whatever. So 20% of the mm-hmm. upper house is retail, but it's sortition. And it swaps out, yeah. like, I don't know, annually. Also, I want to make sure that um, the unemployed caucus yeah. is split and we recognise different kinds of unemployment. Uh-huh. Yeah, like landlord. Landlord's a type of unemployment. 
you know how many landlords there are in Parliament right now? There's just an astronomical. So most they're, of them, they're isn't it? They're just almost all of them. Two point seven million landlords in the UK. One in twenty of the whole population. But in terms of uh, Parliament, I think it's one in five. Less than I was expecting. But it's still a lot. It's still it's a lot. It's still a it's, lot. It's significant. Yeah, it's like absurd considering they're supposed to be representative of people. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's even more in like the cabinet. I think it's something like one in four in the cabinet. Like Johnson's. Johnson's himself is a landlord. The, the uh, a workplace based upper house would probably radically reduce the influence of landlords, given that the House of Lords is like. I mean, including the name. I also think it's really important that um, the people who serve there don't really want to be there. In contrast to the job of a politician, people tend to like politicians who don't seem like politicians or seem like they don't want power. And then they're the people mm. they trust more because they're like, well, this guy doesn't want it. Sortition, in by its very definition, is random. So you will get people, just like jury duty, jury duty can really disrupt your life. So people might have complete other things and they're like, oh, I've just been put in the House of Lords. <laughs> We'd keep the name House of Lords as well. <laughs> yeah. We'd, I've just been put in the House of Lords. I've got to do a year. What? Yeah, I've got to do a yeah, year can in you, the House of Lords. Can you hold my job? Can you, can yeah, you no, it's part job. of the system. And, uh, yeah, they hold, they hold, they'll hold your job. Or would you go full-time or would you have to do like 50-50 because otherwise you'd start thinking in House of Lords mentality even though you're only Oh, that's it. You'd, you'd stop being like, if you work at Clinton's Cards and you're part of the Clinton's Cards caucus, along with, I don't know, one of the Clinton's Cards workers that's part of the House of Lords. And it's like, I'm forgetting about the cards. I'm just thinking about Lord stuff. I don't even remember. I don't even remember like the novelty cards we used to sell. That's why it probably needs to be shorter than that. It needs to be an incredibly quick turnaround. Week. Like I think you just get called in to do an afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, running, you're on this select committee. You've got to question these yeah. people about uh, military spending. But I love, I love not knowing. Like the dual thing of not having an agenda towards power and not wanting to be there, that's good. You don't want to be there. That's, I think that's key. And also I think an advantage is not knowing what the fuck's going on. Because people defend the House of Lords as if it's some like container of expertise and that's its function you know there's these the, the house of lords somehow have some expertise lord alan sugar that that everyone thinks made his money from computers but actually it's just a huge commercial landlord uh which does not take much skill i'd make money by owning things wow these people are not experts like for example the unemployed caucus would have good knowledge of how fucked benefits are, for example, or the job centre, so you'd be less likely to get, you know, the House of Lords, what the fuck do they know about that? Well, yeah, like people actually on the receiving end of policies actually know how they are going. So for all yeah. these pilot schemes that people can roll out, you're like, well, actually, I lived your policy, so maybe I could make a remark on it without having to read a 200-page document. It was, it was my life. I could just pull from my short-term memory. But there is an issue. Isn't there an issue with, like... There's so much information that has to yeah. be processed yeah. that even so, so MPs or, or politicians, or especially in representative democracy, they'd uh -huh. want to say, "Well, my job's to go and like learn it all, but maintain your values." But somewhere, like some part of like state apparatus that's probably unelected, hmm. is some like research intern compiling this document that informs the context that the MP has to go and vote with. And so, like, someone somewhere who's really just an unelected researcher who doesn't care what the, the party politics of this MP is, is going to compile the same document on what you need to know to cast this vote. And those people would still work there. It's called the civil service. I don't know how you service. get around. The civil service will be replaced with an AI, as will the monarch. I think the civil service is just other random workers. I think it's just another <laughs> little... The, the bit that executes policy is also to, uh, so by sortition a random representative of all the economy. 
Well, what I'm saying, if, if it's only the MP, I don't think the sortition is going to do anything. I think you'd be surprised by how much they cast the same votes because they were given the same thing to read to tell them what is at stake in the vote. Mm. At least partially, especially when it comes to stuff. So we're talking about like benefits and like you'd get some redistributive policies. But when it comes to just stuff that people don't know anything about, there's a lot of stuff that goes well, on. Well, on the other hand, they do just don't know about. They just fucking ignore stuff because the Bank of England, straight, you know, I think early COVID, they did just say, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't like normal debt. We've just basically printed the money. We just changed the number. You don't have to do austerity. And the toys are just like, austerity is necessary. So uh, they do just ignore and come in a totally different frame because like, you would expect, you know, the ba- I'm not saying the Bank of England's in any way some like uh, modern monetary theory or radical organisation, but they will just say factual things like, yeah, it's just, you're basically in debt to yourself. You can do whatever the fuck you want. And the government's like, what's that? We have to throw disabled people into a pit. Could you do reverse sortition where like people can become MPs the normal way, but then just randomly at any point, they're just allocated to another part of society. <laughs> but they've got to do a full, they've got to do a full decade before they're allowed out. <laughs> <laughs> so they have to do, um, every time they're making a policy, they have to do Rawls Veil of Ignorance. Yeah, for every law. Every law, <laughs> 10 years, random job. <laughs> Rawls Veil of Ignorance, but I don't know if we've explained this before, is this uh, theory that when you make a decision, you take yourself out of the scenario of the decision and you imagine you could be anyone that has to live with this decision. Um, so you could be the at the worst end of it. And the big argument he uses it for is to try to think of like a just way of uh, running society, uh, which in, and if, if you were in the veil of ignorance and you didn't have any vested interests, uh, like you didn't know uh, how much wealth you would have, or, you know, for example, what race you would be or, or you know, gender, and you would, um, you have to make decisions without that knowledge. And that's, that's how, that's a, the way to come to the just conclusion. And that's supposed to be a thought experiment, but through the power of reverse sortition of MPs, that would do it. So in the upper house, the House of Lords is replaced by sortition based on employment. MPs, as is, however, how many days a week do you get randomly put in another job? You do a full decade. You can go <laughs> to do the job that the sortition person has been sucked out of in the upper house. We can have like a swap scheme. Oh, so you have to be allocated to a specific, it's a full on life swap with an actual living person. It's not just like, <laughs> you are just... You got to go to their house. Yeah, what, and what, you're, you're married to their spouse. Like, what, how... Distill the memories and experience of every worker and then you get injected with that when you become an MP. That would give them depression, wouldn't it? Yeah, give them a big chunk of depression. That would make them mentally ill. Or actually, I think if you if you injected if you took the <laughs> if you took the if you took the median British person, which I think is like a uh, mentally ill, <laughs> a, 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 a white boomer who probably already has almost paid off their mortgage, and you injected that in into someone, it would make them basically a borderline Nazi. Yeah, it would give them like a level of confidence that would be medically diagnosable. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To reject democracy explicitly is an admission of tyranny, a truism as important on the scale of national government as it is in a workplace, a parish council Zoom call, or the annual general meeting for your local Dungeons & Dragons guild. With lip service to democracy, a mainstay of all non-weirdo fringe political positions, there's little friction to compel the examination of what exactly it is we're talking about when we say democracy. 
Most recently, the Tory party has announced they're going to begin a process of introducing voter ID, a move copied from the United States in a bid to reduce and suppress votes from groups less likely to vote against the ruling party. When this scheme was introduced, the UK had a voter fraud percentage of 0.0000063%. And when they tried a voter ID pilot scheme, hundreds of people were turned away from polling centres. And who might be less likely to have legal ID documents to hand? Young people, black people, Roma travellers, homeless people, all people whose votes skew away from the Conservative Party. And I don't want to go into the mechanisms by which first-past-the-post represents one of the most unhelpful and distorted electoral systems going, only useful if you've got a strong preference for weird outcomes. It only passes one of the six criteria of features of a desirable electoral system, which actually is quite, quite interesting reading. It's an interesting topic. Time constraints, can't go into it here. But it's, it's, look it up. For instance, it already takes about 8,000 more votes to get a Labour MP than it does a Conservative MP. After the 2015 election, the Conservative Party began a process of reconstructing electoral seats not based on population, but on existing registration on the electoral register. This vanishes away people less likely to be on the electoral register, but who may still wish to go on and vote in future elections. What groups might they be? Young people, black people, Roma travellers, homeless people, all people whose votes skew away from the Conservative Party. And how well do you think the UK's commitment to promoting democracy stands up when you start looking at its foreign policy? As always, to examine the UK's influence overseas is to stare into the depths of hell. Britain has a long history of supporting oppressive, anti-democratic regimes overseas. Right up until they do something inconvenient, and only then do Western journalists supported by the UK government suddenly discover their long history of human rights abuses. Britain supported General Suharto in Indonesia until he began opposing the economic policies of the IMF, when suddenly it was discovered that this guy has been murdering Indonesian and East Timorese people for 30 years. Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe was supported during the atrocities committed by his army, right up until he started threatening white-owned farmlands. Saddam Hussein was given British backing while he murdered tens of thousands of Kurds in the 80s, but when he inconveniently invades Kuwait, only then is he deemed a dictator. Britain supported successive South African apartheid regimes until they were finally defeated by the African National Congress, at which point all Tory politicians were suddenly lifelong fans of Nelson Mandela. For an example of the UK just outright overthrowing a democracy, just look at declassified documents on the 1953 Iranian coup. When the UK worked to overthrow Iran's democratically elected Prime Minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, in favour of strengthening the power of the Shah, a monarch, all to protect the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which we now know as BP. And that was Churchill, by the way. The guy whose statue is now under round-the-clock protective guard, made of people permanently banned from the Weatherspoon's Sunday Roast Club. Or just looking nearer to home again, just look at the evidence of a plot by MI5 and the army to overthrow Prime Minister Harold Wilson. The royal family were even involved. Britain is even willing to overthrow itself. If you don't believe me, just pop yourself into the parallel universe where Jeremy Corbyn won the election, watch him disappear after two weeks, and then see the papers report that oh, he'd accidentally run himself over with a dozen tanks after he had a baked potato. 
And of course, this is all from the same party that crushed the unions, that made democracy a small and narrower thing, pounded picketers into the dirt with a thousand truncheons. The International Labour Organization, of which the UK is a member, enshrines the right of workers to strike. The European Council of Human Rights, of which the UK remains a signatory, enshrines the right of workers to strike. The United Nations Human Rights Council, of which the UK is a member, enshrines the right of workers to strike. In the United Kingdom, workers do not have the right to strike. What we do have is some of the harshest anti-trade union laws in Western Europe. In the UK, the basic parameters of what it takes to strike are absurdly strict. Current industrial action laws in the UK require a 40% vote in favour in addition to a 50% turnout. This combines to make a requirement of an 80% vote in favour for any given strike action. Can you imagine a general election requiring these kinds of thresholds? Can you imagine can you imagine anything? Can you imagine anything functioning under these thresholds? And that's not all. These rules were designed to be punitive and fiddly. In 2019, despite securing a turnout of 76% and a massive 97% vote in favour of industrial action by postal workers in the Communication Workers Union, they were all denied by the High Court. It was ruled that the vote was unlawful because as postal workers, they took the ballots from the racks at work and filled them in, rather than putting the ballots in a bag and then walking that bag to their own house and then pushing it through their letterbox and then picking it up off the floor and then filling them in and then bringing them back to work. Even though democracy is on the lips of everyone constantly, it is scant and it is precious and what little we have is still relatively young. In the UK, working class men and middle class women, which is women who reside in a rateable property with a value of above £5, they only got the vote in 1918. All women, even those who live in sheds or lighthouses, they only got vote on the same terms of men in 1928, 10 years later and still less than 100 years ago. Each scrap has had to be fought for, properly fought for. Emily Davidson throwing herself in front of the king's horse you might know about. But look up Edith Garrett. She was a jiu-jitsu instructor for the suffragettes so they could fight the police with martial arts. She's four foot 11. And fundamentally, it is socialism, social ownership, that represents the preservation and expansion of democracy. Bringing things under the control and management of society. That's us, me, you. Is that with society, I am a little bit of society. You too, listener, are a little speck, a little moat of society, a little droplet. And if society is some kind of fundamental British value, let's make it big, let's expand it to public spaces, to our jobs, to every aspect of our community. That feels like a more plausible rhetorical line than my current personal favourite of gesturing towards homeless tent encampments and going, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? Could we just make some houses for these people? Which frankly, actually, has not been it's not been polling that well. So while it is endlessly frustrating to live under the hellscape outcomes of late capitalism, failed state, managed democracy, the principle of having a collective say over our future, of being voicelessly subject to the whims of some gonk with a desk and a monogrammed pet leopard, that principle, that's, that's for us lot. That's one of our things. Democracy is ours and we need to protect it. Do you think that all votes should be counted in democratic elections? Look, uh, I'm not sure you can get drawn into pining on what is a different system in the US. Well, I can say, and I said from the outset. Hang on, sorry, sorry. The question is, do you think all votes should be counted in a democratic election? I find it astonishing there's not an answer to that. Well, because what you're going to if I say yes and there's an appeal to those one way,
3 Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean with additional music from Henry Purcell, Jack Evans and Sean Morley featuring trumpet from Josie Hypatia Grounds. Thanks for letting us use that sample, Josie. And thank you, Henry Purcell, for letting me, without your consent, take music that was written in the 1600s and put it through some synthesizers, arguably making it significantly worse. Thank you, listener, for listening to Mandatory Redistribution Party. And as always, we do appreciate sharing episodes on social media and those of you who support us on Patreon. Thank you very much for your support. Love you.